Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. In the early 1930s, New York City was suffering. The stock market crash of 1929 had plunged the nation into the Great Depression, and many New Yorkers were without food, shelter, or jobs. In 1933, voters elected Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia on an agenda to revitalize the city. To help him, LaGuardia tapped the imperious urban planner Robert Moses. Flush with New Deal money, Moses worked to build parks, public beaches, roads, and bridges throughout the New York City area, fundamentally altering the city's landscape. Among the most exciting revitalization efforts was the 1939 World's Fair. City officials hoped it would increase regional tourism, municipal revenue, and public morale. But there was a problem. Where to put it? Moses offered an unexpected solution, the corona ash dump in the marshy outskirts of Queens. During its 26 years of operation, the corona ash dump collected more than 50 million cubic yards of ash waste from Brooklyn's coal furnaces. F. Scott Fitzgerald described the dump in his classic 1925 novel, The Great Gatsby. He called it the Valley of Ashes. Here, the novel's narrator, Nick Carraway, describes the area in director Baz Luhrmann's 2013 film adaptation. The Valley of Ashes was a grotesque place. New York's dumping ground halfway between West Egg and the city where the burnt-out coal that powered the booming golden city was discarded by men who moved dimly and already crumbling through the powdery air. The story goes that when Moses read Fitzgerald's novel, he found both an opportunity and a challenge. Fitzgerald's description of this capitalist wasteland wasn't just like a dark prediction of what would be the necessary ends of uh, jazz age materialist consumer culture. It was a literal smoldering, smoldering pit of ash. That's Evan Price, a PhD candidate in American studies at Harvard University. And Robert Moses actually read this passage. He read this description of the Valley of Ashes, and he took it as a personal challenge as a city builder, as the Baron von Hausmann of New York City, as the great surgeon architect who would repair or prescribe or heal a sick city. He read this description and he thought to himself, this will be part of my legacy project. This will be part of the thing I change that will survive me. Over six years, an enormous temporary city was constructed on top of the ash, characterized by cutting-edge infrastructure, grandiose architecture, and experimental public art. The fair opened in April of 1939, and although it was largely an effort to boost the economy, organizers also hoped it would inspire visions of a rosier future. For here, beside the city of today, visible from its tall towers, man has built a prophecy, projected a dream, created the world of tomorrow. The New York World's Fair. Here, literally, is the greatest show on earth. And through these gates come visitors from all over the world, dramatizing their attractions, their products, their history, and their progress. The advances in technology, the things that will affect the way we dress, eat, 
work, play, travel, and live. The 1939 fair, like all World's Fairs, was about articulating the future. But it wasn't a vision of the future that included everyone. Those who were denied space had to create it for themselves. I'm Zachary Davis, and this is Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. In this episode, we'll explore the history and legacy of World's Fairs and how they both promoted and subverted views of race, gender, and social progress. The first World's Fair was held in London in 1851. Officially dubbed the Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations, it was dedicated to human achievement, technological innovation, and above all, the glory of the British Empire. The Great Exhibition was organized by the innovative British civil servant Henry Cole and the bookish, science-minded Prince Albert, husband to the reigning Queen Victoria. Neighboring European monarchies were struggling to suppress democratic uprisings and working-class revolutions, and the United Kingdom's Great Exhibition was a clear ploy for popular affection. What wasn't clear, however, was just how popular the fair would become. So that fair, um, I think, caught everyone by surprise in the sense that it was just so overwhelmingly successful. This is Robert Rydell, professor of history, director of the Humanities Institute at Montana State University, and author of the book, All the World's Affair. Um, it attracted uh, somewhere between five and six million people. Um, none of its organizers expected an attendance of that magnitude. And with its success uh, came uh, what, in effect, was uh, uh, an international exhibition movement that swept Europe, um, swept the um, uh, the European colonies and arrived in the United States. So by the time we are in the, oh uh, my goodness, 1860s, 1870s, uh, these events called international expositions, universal exhibitions in Europe and world's fairs in the United States are really taking uh, the world by storm. Paris, Amsterdam, and Barcelona were among early host cities. These international expositions became a regular feature of an increasingly interconnected world, and the fairs in turn helped boost the forces of globalization. Cutting-edge technologies like the telephone, plastic, x-rays, the refrigerator, and what I might argue is the most important innovation in world history, the ice cream cone. First introduced in 1904 at the Louisiana Purchase Exposition in St. Louis, all made their debut at World's Fairs. These fairs also profoundly shaped the field of architecture. Because the fairs were temporary, architects could experiment with more radical structures. For the 1851 fair in London, organizers built an exquisite glass and iron structure called the Crystal Palace that revolutionized how public buildings were designed and constructed. And perhaps the most recognizable building in the world was built for the 1889 exposition in Paris, the Eiffel Tower. The World's Fair's drive toward innovation, whether technological or architectural, was animated by one powerful idea, progress. But as Robert Rydell explains, this ambition was tied to Western-centric, imperialist visions of world order. I think for the organizers of fairs, progress meant um, convincing people in the reality of sustained economic growth, leading to um, economic betterment for um, most people and progress by the time we're in this mid to late 19th century world also becomes exclusionary. So there's a paradox there because progress also has a strong racist component. The 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exhibition in St. Louis featured a so-called living exhibit. 
These exhibits, also known as human zoos, were a main draw at many world's fairs, museums, and carnivals across Europe and America. They typically featured people captured from colonized countries who were placed in purported replicas of their villages, given mock traditional costumes, and made to perform for visitors. Sometimes, these individuals were displayed in cages, kept partially or fully naked, and identified as existing somewhere on the evolutionary continuum between the great apes and Europeans. The aim was to underscore the distance between civilization and so-called savagery. A 2004 segment on NPR's Morning Edition described the St. Louis exhibit and spoke to descendants of some of the Filipinos displayed there. The largest part of the fair was the Philippine Village, a 47-acre site that for seven months in 1904 became home to more than 1,000 Filipinos from at least 10 different ethnic groups. The United States had recently acquired the colony of the Philippines in the Spanish-American War, and the exhibition aimed to convince domestic American spectators that this colonization was for the United States and the colonized people's benefit. They brought them to the fair to show to the world that here are people who need our help. They need us to develop them. Uh, Look at how they dress themselves. Look at how they dance. Just look at how they live. The people on display were forced to practice distorted or exaggerated versions of their customs to heighten the sense of otherness. For example, one Filipino tribe ate dog meat only occasionally for ceremonial purposes. But during the fair, they were fed canines every day. What's worse, the individuals displayed in these exhibits were considered expendable resources. Several Filipinos died on the fairgrounds, which is not uncommon any of these fairs that feature um, exhibits of um, uh, people from the colonial possessions. It's, it's quite commonplace. The government had actually expected about 40 Filipinos to die as a result of their experience at the fair. Um, one of the world's most famous uh, physical anthropologists, a man named Dalit Shirdlishka, who was at the Smithsonian Institution, um, was dispatched. Um, he uh, essentially removed their skull caps, removed their brains, and um, um, offered them to American museums. I believe they eventually wound up at the Smithsonian. So the fairs themselves have this um, uh, laboratory effect. Uh, They really become um, hunting grounds, quite literally, for anthropologists um, to gather specimens. Near the exhibit of Filipino migrants, a teenage African pygmy named Oda Benga drew crowds of his own. Benga, who had been purchased from slave traders for display at the fair, was kept in a cage and advertised as a cannibal. You can hear more about fears of cannibals in episode 13 of our show, Consumed. Western superiority was communicated in other, more subtle ways as well. For example, while Western countries' pavilions tended to showcase cutting-edge architecture and technology, non-Western pavilions were often based on older, more traditional forms, in effect freezing them in time and denying them a role in shaping the future. Women were also excluded or exploited. Early fairs banned women's exhibits entirely. When they were finally allowed, displays tended to emphasize women's place in the home. At the Buffalo, New York Pan American Exhibition in 1901, women were encouraged to attend classes such as the washing of flannels, scouring woodwork, cleaning knives and silver household utensils, and bed-making. Women also found themselves sexualized, but in different ways, depending on their race. At the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, white women walking alone were considered to have, quote, loose morals, while many foreign women of color were fetishized, including the wildly popular Egyptian belly dancer, Farida Mazar. 
Yet within this racist and sexist context, some found ways to resist. The fairs themselves become um, really interested, um, uh, contested fields of play um, as uh, people um, who are represented as being somehow inferior fight back in all kinds of ways. At the 1904 St. Louis Fair, Native Americans were put on display in traditional clothing. They could earn some money by charging visitors to take their photographs, and they didn't let people cheat the system. If people tried to sneak in quick photos without paying, some Native Americans used handheld mirrors to reflect the sun into the eyes of the photographer or directly into the camera lens, ruining the shot. At several World's Fairs, Africans from various nations and tribes were displayed singing and chanting in traditional-sounding ways. But unbeknownst to their mostly white spectators, some Africans changed the words to ridicule the Western people and culture that had captured and exploited them. Still other World's Fair participants resisted in more explicit ways. One prime example occurred during the 1876 Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia. This fair marked the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and it was the first World's Fair in the United States. Nearly 10 million visitors, almost one-fifth of the American population at the time, attended the exhibition. At that time, the United States was still plagued by the memory of its traumatic civil war. The Philadelphia organizers hoped their fair could play a role in presenting America as exceptional, progressive, and technologically and economically dynamic. Unsurprisingly, this image of America centered on white Americans' vision of the country. Blackface and minstrel shows were popular evening entertainment. One Southern-themed fairground restaurant employed a, quote, old plantation darky band of African-American musicians who were also made to act out humiliating plantation scenes. Some Black visitors found themselves tricked into signing pledges of support to the then-segregationist Democratic Party. One exhibit in the fair's agricultural hall highlighted the economic promise of Liberia, a colony of former American slaves in Africa. This was, in effect, a not-so-subtle invitation for Black Americans to remove themselves from the United States altogether. One of the fair's main attractions was Memorial Hall, a massive exhibit of paintings intended to represent the full, triumphant story of America. But these works failed to depict the practice and eventual abolition of slavery. And of the numerous paintings of the Civil War, none showed black soldiers. Andrew J. Chambers, an influential clergyman in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, recognized this intentional erasure of African-American history. He spearheaded an effort to create and install a sculpture of Richard Allen, the founder of the Free African Society, the first Black-led organization in North America, and the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. According to Chambers, the inclusion of this monument at the Philadelphia Fair would help assert the vital place of African Americans in the national narrative. He traveled to congregations across the country to raise support and money for the sculpture. Congregants gave whatever they could toward the cause, sometimes just a few pennies. These are the words he preached in an address in 1876. Shall the Negro stand a disinterested spectator? No, we cannot as a race afford to be absent from the American centennial, where the wisest in scientific and religious knowledge, the best in philanthropy, the great in power, the celebrated in art, and the famous of this age shall be gathered. God grant that we may join in this august assemblage of nations, not as slaves, vassals, or servants, but as men. His efforts proved successful. A bust of Richard Allen was created from imported Italian marble. Fair officials resisted its display, but the work was ultimately installed on the grounds. 
Women were also eager to assert their place in society at the 1876 Philadelphia Fair. A group of women banded together to form a general fundraising committee, with Elizabeth Duane Gillespie, a descendant of Benjamin Franklin, as president. Within their first few months, they raised more than $40,000. But when they learned the fair's organizers refused to allot space to display women's achievements, they set their sights on a new goal. The committee raised enough additional money to build their own exhibition hall, which they called the Women's Pavilion. It was the first display of its kind in World's Fair history, and it highlighted the contributions of women both inside and more radically outside of the home. One of the most popular attractions was a woman who operated a steam engine that powered several other exhibits, among them a printing press for the committee's newsletter, The New Century for Women. But even women's buildings were exclusive. They were initially reserved only for the achievements of white women. So during the 1893 Columbian Exhibition in Chicago, Letty A. Trent, a local African-American women's leader, worked to ensure that black women were also represented. Trent's efforts ultimately led to an African-American room in the women's building. Along with handicrafts and textiles, their exhibit also included portraits and biographies of black abolitionists. Another bold advancement in women's empowerment came at the 1939 World's Fair in New York City. At the time, public sex education was basically non-existent. But gynecologist Dr. Robert L. Dickinson envisioned a world in which the reproductive system was widely understood. His exhibit in the Fair's Hall of Man showed a full-scale sculptural model of the human reproductive system. It discusses sex and reproduction, a topic that was usually reserved for the physician's office or the home. This is Abby Higgins, a 2017 graduate of Harvard University. Her senior thesis work focused on Dickinson's landmark sculptural exhibit. So it was this, this taboo topic that only women talked about, and it was in the public, and that was okay, and people wanted it. So it demonstrated that not only was there a need for sex education, but there was a strong desire for it, something straightforward that wasn't confusing and that answered, supposedly, all of their questions. Dickinson's exhibit saw more than 700,000 visitors in 1939 alone, drawing complaints from other fair exhibitors that the depiction of human conception, development, and birth was distracting visitors from exploring the rest of the fair. Following the fair, reproductions of the full sculpture set were sent around the country for installation in municipal science museums. The exhibit was a milestone for public understanding of human reproduction and paved the path for greater acceptance of contraception. One of the most fascinating events in all of World's Fair history was the Parliament of World Religions, which gathered representatives of all the major world faiths together for the first time in history. It was organized by Protestant Christians who were interested in fostering interfaith dialogue, but also promoting their belief that Christianity was the most advanced of all religions. The event's chairman, Presbyterian Minister John Henry Barrows expressed this sentiment in his conference address, claiming that human progress objectively reached its culmination through Christianity, and that when it comes to religious truth, non-Christians, quote, have nothing to add. Surprisingly, the star of the event turned out to be a Hindu monk from India named Swami Vivekananda. Clothed in his striking orange robes, when it was his turn to address the delegates, he stood and began his speech with a salutation. Sisters, and brothers of America. His introduction was met with a raucous two-minute standing ovation. It fills my heart with joy unspeakable to rise in response to the warm and cordial welcome 
which you have given us. I thank you in the name of the most ancient order of monks in the world. And I thank you in the name of the millions and millions of Hindu people of all classes and sects. I am proud to belong to a religion which has taught the world both tolerance and universal acceptance. In his speeches, Vivekananda directly challenged the notion of Christian supremacy. He compared each religion and its claims of universal truth to frogs sitting in a well. That has been the difficulty all the while. I am a Hindu. I'm sitting in my own little well and thinking that the whole world is my little well. The Christian sits in his little well and thinks the whole world is his well. The Mohammedan sits in his little well and thinks that is the whole world. And he questioned American Christians' focus on saving souls over saving lives. You Christians who are so fond of sending out missionaries to save the soul of the heaven, why do you not try to save their bodies from starvation? Vivekananda's lectures were overwhelmingly successful, and he and his message became an overnight sensation. The American industrialist John D. Rockefeller reportedly made his first large donation for public welfare after a meeting with Vivekananda. In the following years, Vivekananda lectured widely across the U.S., established Hindu centers in New York and San Francisco, and planted the seeds for the later explosion of Western interest in Eastern religious traditions. This is the great irony of these expositions. Although World's Fairs were founded on an ideology of Western supremacy, they ultimately helped to foster movements to oppose it. Americans lost interest in World's Fairs in the latter part of the 20th century, perhaps because television offered them all the entertainment and novelty they needed. But the fairs live on without us. Astana, Kazakhstan hosted the most recent one in 2017, and Beijing will host the next one in 2019. The focus has shifted as well. Robert Rydell explains. If you um, go to a World's Fair today, what you will find will be um, scads and scads of exhibits that tell what technologies can do to remediate environmental damage, um, how science and technology can um, bring about a greener planet. And all of this, of course, um, I think most people would agree, is uh, uh, very much to the good. These modern fairs, with their focus on sustainability, seem to envision a more equitable future. But true to their 19th century origins, they continue to embrace technological advancements as the primary means and measure of progress. And they continue to uphold a global order that rewards some countries and people more than others. What complicates um, all of this is that um, the world today is every bit as unequal as it was back in the heyday of the Gilded Age, Victorianism, the Belle Epoque. Um, and so the question that still remains is one of um, uh, distribution of um, economic resources. And the fairs have not done such a good job, recent fairs have not done such a good job in addressing, in addressing those imbalances. So let's return to the site of the 1939 World's Fair in New York. The Corona ash dumps proved to be such a successful site for the 1939 fair that they were reused for the fair in 1964. Today, the site is home to Flushing Meadows Corona Park, the fourth largest park in New York City. Evan Price visited to see what was left of the park's history. I, I, it occurred to me that, you know, I, I bet the ash is still there. So I figured if I dug a hole, I would be able to get to it. 
but I didn't really have a um, a shovel. But I did have like a, a keychain and a, a, a you know a beer bottle opener. So I sat uh, in the middle, like under a tree, and was, was digging for about. It took me like forty five minutes of digging. It started to rain on me, but I was like, no, I've committed to my hole. And I, it took me like it was it was uh, eight to ten inches before I got down to uh, the fly ash. It was just right there, and it, it's been there the entire time, just simmering, simmering, simmering. It's never going to go anywhere. World's fairs were founded on top of racist, colonialist, and patriarchal ideologies. But instead of refusing to participate, Andrew Chambers, Swami Vivekananda, Letty Trent, and others sought to transform them, even in the face of powerful opposition. Their examples show that there is room for rebellion in even the most controlled spaces. World's fairs may have been built to entrench the reigning world order, but by bringing diverse groups together, they also created the opportunity to destabilize it. This story also offers wider lessons for building on top of flawed foundations. America was founded on genocide and slavery. It is a difficult legacy to grapple with. We shouldn't deny that history, but we also shouldn't throw our hands up in despair. There are always opportunities to resist injustice and transform flawed institutions into more equal ones. We can't change the past, but we can change the future. The world of tomorrow is created by what we do today. This episode was produced by Monica Lindsay Perez and Nick Anderson. Ministry of Ideas is an initiative of the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, Pallavi Kathamasu, and Maria McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe Ideas section for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, or becoming a patron on Patreon. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at Zachary at ministryofideas.org. We would love to hear from you. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. I want to tell you about a great episode of the Hub & Spoke show, The Lonely Palette. Tamar Abishite reveals the daring and provocative themes in Yoko Ono's 1960s performance, Cut Piece. Tamar beautifully untangles the complex nature of consent, something we're still grappling with 50 years later. If you think Yoko Ono's primary legacy is breaking up the Beatles, this episode will make you reconsider. Check it out at thelonelypalette.com. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.